The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. That's Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amanda. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see many of you in person, and thanks for those that are joining us online. We appreciate all of you being engaged in this time. Uh, This prayer is very familiar. Obviously, it's one of the most, perhaps the most familiar prayer in all of uh, the Bible and in all of Christian history, Uh, and yet we can really easily move past it uh, and not think about the depth of the meaning and even the kind kind of context in which Jesus is teaching us this prayer. He's teaching us about the inner kind of motives for why we pray, what prayer is about, and what it looks like to actually be in communion with, to communicate with, or have a relationship with your Father in heaven. And so we're going to pray right now, but as we do, I want to encourage you with the first lines of this prayer. Our God, our Father in heaven. And that you have a Father who's in the heavenly realm, and that's not distant and far out. It's not up in the sky somewhere, long, long way away. The heavenly realm is this unseen realm right here, that there's a Father. And I don't know what your experience is with parents, but there's a Father who's good, who is strong, and he loves you, and he's with us right now. And he's invited us to have a relationship, to commune with him. And so let's calm our hearts right now before the presence of our good heavenly Father. Um, Father, to be able to approach you as children, as sons and daughters um, is stunning. And I feel in my own heart and perhaps in others around me today in our community uh, that we can often lose sight of what a privilege it is to call the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who upholds the universe by the word of your power, who who fashioned the galaxies and our solar system and our planets and all of history, who designed our very inner lives and everything about us, that we get to come to you as a father. 
that we get to approach you as children. And that we know because of Jesus that you love us. You're paying attention to us. And you care about us. And you care about this moment. And so, Father, would you open our eyes to the power of your presence and deepen in us a a longing and experience of real communion, of real relationship, personal relationship with you, our creator. And so would you help us today in powerful ways, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Everybody prays, at least nearly everybody prays at some point in their life, even like you're kind of most kind of atheistic people at some point the kind of like the maybe there's something out there throw a prayer out in a moment of crisis in a moment of desperation when all of the other kind of like tools we have aren't working and the little methods and the tricks that we play and our our kind of like bag of tricks that we use to get through challenging things when all that runs out uh, people pray often and they pray about all sorts of different kinds of things and the question I want to ask you today is Where do you pray and why do you pray? Uh, Where do you pray and why do you pray? Like, um, what are the contexts where you pray? Uh, Because for a lot of us, some of the main times that we end up praying, especially in Christian circles, are when we're around other people because it's just the thing to do. It's a thing to do at mealtime as you're sitting down with other people and we're going to pray. It's the thing to do at a small group. It's a thing to do on a Sunday. It's a thing to do if you're kind of like meeting with some people. It's like a thing, at least in Christian communities, it's a thing we do. And so there's a temptation to only pray perhaps when we're around other people. Uh, but also, why do you pray? Like, what are the situations that kind of cause you to, to pray? Um, I, I think often of what I call uh, Hail Mary prayers, and I don't mean like Catholic Hail Mary prayers. I mean like football Hail Mary prayers. Like, you're down by five. There's like eight seconds on the clock. You're on the 45-yard line. You're probably not going to win, but you'll throw something out just in case. Like, it's probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to work. But I'm in a moment of desperation. I'm in a moment of crisis. I'm in a moment of, like, I I don't know what's left. And so I'm just going to chuck out a prayer and see if something happens because I have nothing else I could do. Um, I think about about that, and I also think about those kinds of prayers even even in the midst of sports. Sports are funny because... Uh, you, you see people praying a lot before games and stuff and nothing against it. But I remember, I remember I was in Fort Collins with a, with a community of people and it was a very kind of multi-generational community. And we are, uh, this is about 10 years ago and we are watching the Broncos, uh, play. It was a Thursday night game. I think the Jets or the Eagles. And, uh, and it was during the Tim Tebow era. And by Tim Tebow era, I mean that one year where Tim Tebow, you know, played that era and, uh, and in this, in this uh, particular game, it was crazy. And there was, like, uh, there was a couple of elderly ladies who were diehard Broncos fans who were just like in there and kind of like in the action and, and cheering and just excited and engaged. And all of a sudden they were gone. And I, and I didn't know where they were. And I was like, hey, where did they go? And they're like, oh, they're in the other room praying for Tim Tebow. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And the Broncos won that game, which was remarkable. That was like back in the day when God liked the Broncos. And... Uh, because clearly he doesn't anymore or not praying enough, something like that. Uh, but we pray for all sorts of things, right? The things that we want to see happen, we pray. So there are some sociologists that, that talked about modern conceptions of Christianity and, and described it like this. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. 
So the modern conception of Christianity, the sort of predominant way people think about what Christianity is, and this is not true or accurate uh, expression of Christianity, but it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning God's mostly concerned and Christianity is mostly concerned with the, the good things that we're supposed to do and the bad things we're not supposed to do. It's moralistic. It's therapeutic. In other words, it kind of exists and God exists to kind of help us out, to help us through our stuff, to be like our therapist that's kind of guiding us through the, the, the kind of hard little things in our life. And that's mostly God's relationship with us. And it's deistic. In other words, it conceives of God as like real, but far away and not super concerned with the sort of everyday fabric of life. And so in that conception, it makes sense why prayer would be either a rote ritual you engage in periodically or a crisis pleading. If you're out there, if you're listening, if you're paying attention, would you do something now? Because I need help. I need help. I've reached a moment of real crisis where I cannot find my way through this. And in this passage, what Jesus is actually addressing is the inner motive of the why of prayer and what that prayer actually looks like, what it actually looks like to be in communion with God. And at the heart of the whole passage, it is an invitation. It's an invitation to actually reorient your life around a real relationship with God as your good father. Now, this prayer, in, in the context around it, Jesus is inviting his people, the people of the kingdom, to reorient your life around an actual, real relationship, a personal, interpersonal relationship between the creator of the universe who has chosen to actually relate to us as a good father who's paying attention to you, who loves you, who cares about you, who provides for you, who leads you, who is strong, and he loves you. To reorient your life uh, around this God. And so the way Jesus unpacks it in the passage, uh, in the first couple of verses, five and six, he's talking about uh, one false motive or an unhealthy motive for prayer. In verses seven and eight, another unhealthy motive for prayer, sort of distortions of the why of prayer. And then he enters into the Lord's Prayer of this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to relate to, to commune with, to talk with, to spend time with your good Heavenly Father. And so we're going to dive in and just look at it in, in this way. First, we're going to look at the why of prayer the two distortions and what God's actually calling us to, and then the what of prayer and what it looks like to actually commune with God. First one, uh, if you have a Bible, uh, keep it open because I want you to see this in the passage. It's really beautiful and powerful on uh, what Jesus is teaching us here. Verse five, he says this, and when you pray, and he's presuming that, that people do pray, and the reason why he's presuming that is he's preaching to, speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience where they had regular rhythms of prayer uh, three times a day at least, corporate prayers, individual prayers, and different kind of methods and ways that they would pray. He says, so when you're praying, you must not be like the hypocrites. Um, the hypocrites, the word there is a word that's like for play actors, like uh, people, like actors that would be on stage in a drama where they're pretending to be somebody in front of an audience that they're not actually, but they're pretending to be that for the kind of pleasure and enjoyment and approval and applause of the spectators. And so he says, when you pray, don't approach prayer like an actor on stage, doing it mostly for outward appearance that people will like you and think something about you. In other words, there's a propensity for us as human beings to distort our spirituality as a tool to actually get the applause and the appreciation of other people, to get the approval and the acceptance of other people, to pretend like we're something on the outside that we're not actually on the inside. And that's what Jesus is addressing in this whole section in Matthew 
chapter six, is the tendency for us to conceive of our spirituality or our kind of religious practices as a means by which we can gain appreciation, approval, acceptance from others. And he says that's not what prayer is. That's not what it's designed to be. It's so much more beautiful. So he says, for, for they love to stand and they pray in the synagogues and at the street corners in order that, look at this purpose clause in verse five, in order that they may be seen by others. Their purpose in praying or a false motive for praying is, is to be seen by other people. And that's why we ask, where do you pray? Because if you were to take an honest look at your life and say, hey, the main kind of like context where I'm praying is just when I'm around other people. It's in the small group, it's in the Bible study, it's at the meal. But if you were to be honest and look at like, are there times when it's just you and God and you're, and you're wanting to talk to him? You're wanting to spend time with him? You're wanting to express things to him, to spend time in his presence, to ask him for forgiveness or grace or help or strength or wisdom or guidance? Like if you honestly looked at your life, honestly, and you evaluated your prayer life, removing all of the sort of public prayers, and just got to the private, you and God, no one else, nobody's gonna walk in, nobody's gonna see you. What's your relationship with God like? What's that prayer life like? That's convicting. It's convicting for somebody like me who a lot of my job is public spirituality. A lot of what I do is stand up on a stage in front of people and it's so easy for me to even conceive of something like this as a way to get something from you as a way to like, do you like me? Do you accept me? Do you, do you like, like the church? And, and, and if you do, it makes me feel good about myself. And if you don't, and so I can like work hard and do these spiritual things to get something from you instead of actually coming from a deep relationship with God, knowing that he loves me, he's for me, his grace is in me, and then expressing that love to you. And if I'm honest, my heart is a mixed bag of motives. And so is yours. None of us have these like entirely pure motives. Like I just treasure God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love you and don't care at all what you think about me. That would be wonderful. But it's, but it's not entirely true. I hope God's growing that in me to give me freedom because when you approach your spirituality as a means of getting something from people and you live your life to kind of crave and strive to get stuff from people, it's exhausting. And now your sense of joy your sense of acceptance is, that, is now contingent on the approval or disapproval of others around you. And that's a horrific, dehumanizing way to live. See, the reality is you're designed by God to crave and to long for acceptance and approval. You're designed to do it. You're not gonna like to kind of tuck that away and say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't care about what God thinks about. I'm just kind of like my own self. And it's not real. In your heart, you are designed to kind of Find who you are in the context of a loving and accepting relationship. You're designed to find that from God. The God who created you, who wove you together, who designed you with goodness and dignity and value and worth, who loves you. You're designed to find security in relationship with him. To actually be free to be exactly as you are. To not have the sort of private version of yourself that's like dark and distorted. And this public version of yourself, whether it's a spiritual public version or a social media public version or an at-work public version or in front of your family public version or in front of your gospel community, whatever that version is that you're kind of the hypocrite, the sort of play actor of you, you're not designed to live in this sort of disintegrated way. In relationship with God, you can be exactly who you are with the beauty and the brokenness that's in you knowing that he loves you and he's for you and that brings security and freedom and actually the ability to experience change and healing 
and transformation. But in the absence of that relationship, when we reject the reign of God and we start sort of constructing a life apart from his presence, every human being is now kind of spending your energy, wielding your agency, like kind of bending all of your resources towards trying to get people or a community or some kind of theoretical sense of like, I'm good enough, I'm accepted, I'm loved. And it's the motivation behind your kind of the appearance that you project, the behaviors that you project, the, the degree of success or power or laid backness or whatever the kind of like ideal version of you you're trying to project out there that in certain ways might be kind of different than the sort of inner life that you have. You're spending all of your energy to kind of be this person that people would accept. And Jesus is saying your relationship with God isn't like that. Using prayer or spirituality as a tool to get people to think something special about you is a, is a bondage. And God's inviting you to something different. He's inviting you to know him as Father who knows you, who sees you, and who loves you. So he's calling us away from this, this concept of approaching prayer as a way to get something from people or to appear a certain way in front of people and to actually experience life in an intimate, powerful relationship with a God who knows you, who wants to be with you. He wants to spend time with you. And then he addresses a second distortion of this motive, a distorted motive. And it's in verse seven. He says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So when he says Gentiles, he's talking about non-Jewish people. And in this context, uh, non-Jewish people were also very religious people. They were worshiping pagan gods in a very polytheistic society, pluralistic society, and they approached the gods uh, as those who could do things for them, but it was a very dysfunctional relationship. And so the way people would approach gods in the pagan religions is they would do temple worship and they would pray certain prayers and they would do certain things to get things from the gods. And so the concept of the gods in, in that kind of culture was that gods don't really like humanity. They created humanity to kind of like manage the earth and do their bidding. And they also long for kind of like the sort of like um, to be satisfied by the approval of humans and the worship of humans. And so it's this sort of dysfunctional quid pro quo relationship where if I worship in the right way and say the right prayers and heap up all these words and say these magic prayers in these special ways, then the gods will bless my land. Then the gods will bless my family. Then the gods will do these things that I long for the gods to do. In other words, using prayer or spirituality to actually manipulate God to do what you want God to do. And Jesus says, that's not what prayer is supposed to be like for my people. It's not supposed to be your attempt to kind of use your practices to get God to do what you want him to do. You have the, the things you long for in life, the, the life that you're trying to build, the agenda you've set for your life, the little king, kingdom that you're try, trying to construct. And, and when it's struggling to, to kind of build the life that we long for and the family we long for and the job we long for and the house we long for and the kind of lifestyle we long for, I, I'm not making enough progress in my little kingdom project. Now I'm gonna go to God and what are the special prayers I need to do and how do I show that I really mean it? And okay, fine, I'll start like praying again because I really want to, you to do this thing for me. In other words, he's like a genie and a lamp that I'm rubbing to say like, don't you exist to kind of grant me these wishes and desires? And Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not what prayer is designed to be. It's not the way it's designed to be. Prayer is designed to be an experience 
of a relationship with God that leads to abundant and flourishing life. It's designed to be a desire to cultivate the relationship with the God who made you, who loves you, who knows you, and who knows exactly what you need, even when it's not what you think you need. Who knows exactly where you should go and has an agenda for the world that is beautiful in which you will thrive and flourish, but it might be distinct from, different than the vision you have for your life and and the life that you think will lead to flourishing and thriving. A life like the sort of Sermon on the Mount life where a flourishing life comes in relationship with a God whose heart is bent towards the poor, the needy, the broken, those who are longing for mercy. And so Jesus is calling us to reorient our life away from these distorted motives to actually desire to commune with God. And that's what prayer is. And so Jesus kind of turns the corner and begins to say, here's what it could look like. Here's a framework for prayer. And so a lot of people approach the Lord's Prayer, and there's nothing wrong with this, but as, as uh, just essentially a memorized prayer to pray in corporate settings. Um, it can be that. There's nothing wrong with form prayers. They actually are really powerful and significant, but it's more than that. It's supposed to be a framework. Um, I, for me, I have experienced, like kind of had this negative experience in my own life and my own story with form prayers or prayers that are kind of memorized. Um, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and uh, there's a lot that I'm thankful for um, about that experience. Um, one of the prayers we would pray all the time was a mealtime prayer. In my whole life, praying this prayer multiple times a day for years and years and years, uh, which is like it's embedded deep, deep within me. I heard it as like one long word, like the whole prayer as like one long, take a deep breath. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Blessed the Lord for these are gifts which are about to receive from the bounty through Christ the Lord, amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. You know, eat food. You know, that's like the thing we had to do, the potion, the kind of thing we'd have to say before we could have permission to eat. And I remember like then I, when I like later learned more about relationship with God, and I think there were people that prayed that like powerfully and authentically. I didn't. I had just like memorized it as a rote kind of thing to express before we eat. And, and I remember years later, uh, I wasn't in the Catholic Church anymore, but I was back around Catholic family, and we were praying that prayer, and I like slowed down to like listen to the words. I'm like, that is a beautiful prayer. Like it's a beautiful prayer. Bless us, O Lord, for these, thy gifts which we are about to receive are from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Like all that we're about to receive are gifts that are coming from your bounty through Christ. What an incredible thing. So we're so thankful, God. Would you bless this moment as we receive these beautiful gifts? And, and so there's a tendency for us to actually think about the Lord's Prayer of like, yeah, 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 I know it. But to actually understand the depth of what it's saying and what it's inviting us to, of how it's inviting us to kind of cultivate a relationship with God. And so here's how it's, here's how it's framed. Here's the framework of the prayer. First, it's this sort of like preamble, this sort of introduction that's inviting us to actually approach God as a, a father. And it's this first phrase in the passage, our Father in heaven. I'm at the very beginning. It's this call to remember that God is your Father. That God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, desires for you to know him as a child would know a father. Now, I know there's distortions in that from human experiences, where for some of you that's very challenging, whether because of an absent father or the death of a father or an unhealthy father in in any different ways to any really, in sometimes very painful degrees. I understand that that's hard. And so in certain ways, maybe your experience of a father has been misrepresented by your human experience. And I think God does want to redeem that in us, to actually know that there's a father who created you, 
who knows you, who delights in you, and who wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. He's a father who not just cares about what you do, but how you're doing, the way a good father would. Uh, I've, I've shared often, for a lot of my Christian life, there's been a propensity in my own life to approach God as a servant in the army of a king versus a son in the arms of a father. That I wanna approach God as like, look, at, I, I need your help. And so prayer is like, I need resourcing King General Jesus because I'm out here doing your mission and, and kind of working hard to do all these things for you and to do this for you and this for you and this for you. And so I'm coming to you, I need your help for these things I'm doing. But the concept of being a son in the arms of a father who loves me, who sees me, who doesn't need me to do, do, do for him in order to actually love me and delight in me and want to spend time with me? How about for you? Have you ever approached God? Do you approach God as a father who loves you and who wants to be with you, who's inviting you to, to, to kind of crawl up on his lap? I love that about my kids when they just want to like hop on my lap and just sit with me and talk and hear what they're thinking and what they're imagining and what they want and what they're feeling and the crazy ideas that they have about life and the world. And like those moments are so precious that God is that kind of a father that enjoys being with us. And that's the whole context for everything else that's happening and the sort of content of the prayer is this invitation to be in relationship with your Father in heaven. And then the first few lines um, are all kind of in this, in this realm of actually aligning your heart with God's kingdom vision. So he says, hallowed be thy name. In other words, let your name be esteemed as holy. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in the heavenly, heavenly realm. And so all of these first kind of things are all about aligning your heart. God, what we want is we want your character, your glory, your name, your power, your majesty to be esteemed that the God of the universe who is imminent, who is near, and who loves you is also transcendent and holy, 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 and reigns with power and supreme majesty. And to actually know that, that I have a relationship with the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. I want to esteem your name. I want to center my life around your kingdom and your reign and your goodness and your wisdom and not just my life. I want the whole world to be centered on the presence of God and to delight in you and to worship you and to treasure you and to honor you and to follow you. I want your name to be esteemed as holy, set apart, distinct, majestic, honored. I want that in my life. And in all the ways I misrepresent your name and I don't esteem your name and I kind of turn away from your glory and your goodness and misrepresent you in my relationships and my activity, God, bring me back. I want to esteem your name as holy and I want it to happen in the world and I want your kingdom to come and I want your will, your reign, your wisdom for life to be done on earth as it already exists in the heavenly realm. And this idea of the kingdom of the heavens that Jesus comes telling every, I have good news. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. My, my kingdom is coming and I'm bringing the, the reign of God that's existed in the heavenly realm back to earth where people will know my love, know my grace, know my power and align their lives with my kingdom values and virtues and will align all of their life under my good and wise reign that God's inviting us to align our hearts with the kingdom of God and to reorient our vision for the world and what he's doing in the world in the midst of a season like this where there's injustice and there's division, there's anger and malice and contempt and brokenness. And all this brokenness, we're saying, God, bring your kingdom on earth. May your justice come on earth. Your, your grace come on earth. Your love come on earth. Your rest come on earth. Your peace come on earth as it is in heaven. Bring the kingdom. 
Bring the kingdom. Wherever, wherever you feel the brokenness of the world, when you're praying for healing or for restoration, you're praying that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And then the, the second half of the prayer, we don't have time to get into all of it, but it's so powerful. Um, it's so powerful, so we might create some different contexts to talk about different aspects of it. But it's an expression of our dependence on God, our need for him, our need for daily provision, that the kind of root sin in the Garden of Eden is we don't need God's wisdom and strength anymore, and so there's this separation. And so this image is like in the midst of the wilderness as we're living through life, even in relationship with God, we need him to provide for us daily, not just food, but all the things we need. I need strength to love my family. I need strength to be kind and gracious and patient in the workplace with this coworker that's been difficult. I, I, need, I need wisdom in this situation. I need, I need forgiveness. I need help trusting you with these outcomes. I, I, I need you today and give me what I need today because without you, I can do nothing. I can't make it through. I don't want to make it through life without you. I want to be with you, and I need you today. And I need your forgiveness today. I need your help expressing your forgiveness and your grace and your love towards others around me. I need you today, and I need your guidance. I need your protection. I need your deliverance. In the midst of the challenges of this life, that there is an enemy who wants to devour you and turn you away from God, and we're praying, Father, don't lead me towards those challenges, those temptations, and those trials. I, I would prefer to be spared from them. I would, I would prefer to not experience them, just like Jesus saying in the garden, let this cup pass from me. I don't want the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so give me the strength and protect me and deliver me from the evil one who wants in the midst of those challenges to turn me away from the presence and the love of God. And this is the prayer. And Jesus is saying, this is what it means to relate to God, to esteem him, to align your heart with his wisdom, to depend on him, to ask him for provision and help, to trust in his grace and his forgiveness, to embody his grace and forgiveness to other people, and to walk with him through the challenges of life, asking him to help deliver you from those challenges and from the evil one. It's beautiful. And it should shape the way we interact and commune with God. But Jesus isn't just being a spiritual director. He's not just like, hey, I'm coming to help you learn. You guys, I came to earth to help you know you haven't been praying exactly right, so I'm going to reorient some of that. He came to be the king and the savior of the world. He came to reconcile us to the Father, to secure us in relationship with him, not on the basis of our obedience or our goodness or our morality, but on his life, death, and resurrection. He came to esteem the name of his Father, to trust in his glory, to actually honor the name of the Father, to represent the Father with power. He came to bring the kingdom and the reign of God to earth as it is in heaven. He came to do the will of the Father perfectly, beautifully, powerfully. He came to meet us in our greatest need, our need for grace and love and forgiveness and reconciliation and salvation. He came to provide for us and to forgive us and to lead us and to deliver us. He came to be the Savior we long for and the Savior we need. And so as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't merely pray it as sort of like autonomous human beings in relationship with a distant God. We pray it as those who have been brought near to the God of grace through the work of Jesus, looking to him, trusting in him, resting in him, rejoicing in him for what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you now. And we need you now to open our eyes to the presence of our Father. Um, Father, thank you for being a good father to us. Would you, in 
our community, in our personal lives, in our families, among our roommates, in Park Church, would you make your name holy? That we'd be a church that knows you as a father, but also honors you and esteems you and worships you and treasures you. And would you let your kingdom come, your reign be expressed in our lives, that we'd find joy and flourishing abundant life under your reign and that we would express the, the character of our God and the goodness of your reign and the way we live in this world. Would you help us? Would you provide for us, guide us, give us hearts of grace while we consider your grace and your love and your forgiveness? And would you protect us as we walk through the trials of this life? Deliver us from the evil one, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.